Hello, and welcome to the 36th episode of Breaching Extinction. This week, we're going to focus on talking about activism, um, specifically in regards to salmon, um, with Bonnie Glambeck of the Cleoquat... Words are hard. Cleoquat Action um, Organization, and so she's going to tell us a little bit about what she does um, and gives us some useful tools for activism, so hope you guys enjoy it. (laughs) how are you doing today i'm great how are you doing i'm doing well you know just living through this quarantine like everybody else yeah i know it's pretty extraordinary times absolutely well thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me um go ahead and introduce yourself tell us a little bit about who you are what your current role is and kind of what has motivated you to do this work yeah uh, well, my name is Bonnie Glambeck, and I'm the campaigns director with Clackwood Action Society, based in Tofino, British Columbia. And uh, I've been a resident of this region for uh, over 30 years now. And um, I came here because I love the uh, the big trees and the wild uh, spaces of Clackwood Sound, and uh, and got involved in conservation uh, once I moved here. That's awesome. Um, I read a little bit on your website that you like kind of developed a passion for the area through kayaking. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, well, first off, my husband and I live on a little island just across from Tofino, and we commute by kayak. So uh, we don't have a motorboat. We just go back and forth by kayak and bring all our groceries and whatnot. Um, so that's a pretty, pretty special lifestyle that we have that way. And then um, in addition to that, uh, we're both expedition paddlers. So we have done many, many long trips up and down the BC coast, um, exploring, um, you know, some of the beautiful places that we have here. And, you know, of all the explorations that we've done, when we come back to Clackwood Sound, we realize like this is really one of the most special places on the whole BC coast. And in addition to that, we ran um, a kayaking company and tour company for about 10 years. Uh, and we, we trained uh, kayakers, so we trained guides and recreational kayakers who wanted to be able to get out and do some things on their own and took people on tours as well. Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely a very special lifestyle to be able to kayak from your island to other parts of land. Um, yeah, I was privileged enough to be a kayak guide last summer, and that's... Be, like being on the water in a kayak is such a special experience. I can see why you feel so connected. Um, so tell me, like, what is the Clay Cow Action Initiative and what are some of the goals of your organization? Well, Clackwood Action, um, our, our, our big mission is to save the wild salmon of Clackwood Town or protect them and to see them thrive and come back to healthy, abundant numbers. And so we use um, advocacy, education, and research to achieve our goals. We have several threats to salmon in Clackwood Sound, um, including um, the potential of uh, some open pit copper mines and gold mines here in Clackwood Sound. Um, And the big threat right now that we're focusing a lot of um, our attention on is the open net pen salmon farms which um, are abundant here in Clackwood Sound. We have uh, 20 farms, farm sites here in Clackwood Sound, and they are on the migration routes of the wild salmon. So all along the fjords and inlets where the salmon come and go from the rivers where they spawn, 
um, they are facing these farms. And so that's our big focus right now. We feel it's the biggest impact on the salmon in our region. Absolutely. And um, the sound is located in BC, correct? Yeah, that's right. We're actually on Vancouver Island, which is off the west coast of uh, BC. And we're on the west coast of Vancouver Island. So we are um, we're on the open ocean. And uh, our area has surf beaches, beautiful, long, sandy beaches, as well as a whole series of fjords, uh, really long inlets with beautiful rivers uh, up them. And uh, it's actually the largest temperate rainforest left on Vancouver Island. So it's a very, very special place. Yeah, it sounds like it. So why are these, like... Um, artificial kind of salmon farms there like why are instead of having just like the natural salmon go through and how long have they been here they've been here um, since the early 90s Um, and they're here essentially it's like any type of extractive industry they're here to exploit uh, the beautiful pristine waters that we have and um, it's a very inexpensive way for the companies to run, to have their farms um, in an open net pen. So they're just floating like a float house on the ocean. Wow. They're huge though. They're many, many hectares large. Um, so it's one of these industries that's just taking advantage of, um, of using resources that belong to other people. So it's kind of free rent and free water for them. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Um, so, they've been there for a while now um i know with like a lot of other fishing or like big you know industries like that there's a lot of side effects like um catching and like having bycatch or um you know pollution or other things are there other symptoms other than like them directly impacting the salmon are there other things that are impacting the environment by them being here yeah so they um they put out a lot of sewage Mm -hmm. um you know equivalent to cities of millions of people and that effluent is flowing into the waters and it affects um, other marine life. Mm -hmm. They are plagued with um, a parasite called sea lice which do occur naturally but it's like with any type of industrial agriculture with animals where you end up with animals crowded together you end up with a lot of diseases and parasites. So the sea lice are a real problem for the salmon farm industry Mm -hmm. and to fight the sea lice they use very um, harsh chemicals and pesticides and those chemicals and pesticides end up in the waters of Clackwood Sound so and uh, the sea lice are um, a crustacean so that's similar to crabs and prawns and, and other species like that so this is impacting the food web in Clackwood Sound. Um, they also use antibiotics on the farm. And again, this is um, spreading through the environment. There's also been issues with marine mammals because they are um, located in an area where we have humpback whales and gray whales. We have sea lions, sea otters um, and seals, lots of bird life. So these, these um, animals can become entangled in the nets and the farms have license to kill animals um, that interfere with their uh, farming operations. So we've had a couple of incidents in Clackwood Sound. Uh, once uh, a gray whale was found dead in one of Sir Mac's fish farms and it drowned. Mm. And then recently a humpback whale, uh, a young one had somehow, I guess, breached right into the open net pen 
and luckily it was released although we don't know you know if it sustained internal injuries or whatnot when it went into the pen wow yeah so you know and then a few years ago uh 15 sea lions were shot by the fish farm company over the course of two days wow oh my gosh yeah, and I know Washington really started, like, potentially an initiative to try to combat the whole Chinook salmon issue on that side of things by killing the sea lions, which is really ineffective. Um, at least that's our understanding of it because they play such a vital role. I'm I'm shocked that they had the, the authority to do that. I'm honestly not so familiar with, you know, Canadian policies as much as I am U.S. policies. That's, that's insane. Um, are they still, is that still an issue with them killing animals or having kind of like those effects on marine mammals as well? Yes, like just on, we have a, we have a salmon farm watchdog program called Clackwood Salmon Investigation. We call it CSI for short. Oh, that's so cute. And yeah. So we get out in the field and we monitor the farms and do um, research around them. And just a few weeks ago, we actually found a sea lion trapped, actually two sea lions were trapped underneath the between the nets essentially it's kind of a little hard to describe but uh you know and i imagine that those sea lions were probably killed because i don't know how they could have gotten them out of where from where they were trapped um so it is an ongoing issue um the company does report somewhat on the animals that are killed on the farm but i suspect that we're not really learning about all of the animals that are killed of course not yeah that would make sense so obviously this is impacting, it sounds like, pretty much every species. Um, so how do you maintain the ecological and social integrity like throughout the sound, you know, doing your work? Well, um, you know, we feel that because salmon is a keystone species in our region, this is why we're focusing on um, the protection and trying to mitigate the damage against the salmon. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons why we're working to get the farms out because, um, you know, it's impacting so many other species that depend on salmon. There's over a hundred species that are um, depending on salmon as a food. And then as you probably know, I don't know if your listeners know, but mm-hmm. salmon, when they spawn, return to the old growth forest in the streams where they were born. And they um, bring nitrogen back from the marine ecosystem back into the forest ecosystem. And so this is the secret to why the, we have these monumental cedars here on the west coast of uh, British Columbia. Wow. I didn't know that. And I don't know if my listeners knew that either, because this is, a, you know, mostly a whale podcast, but obviously it's not all about whales. Um that's yeah that's crucial that's uh, they they definitely need to be here so is it the chinook salmon that you guys have or is it another species we have all the species all five species of salmon okay and yeah and what's happening with the chinook salmon in our region is um well it's happening all over the coast but what we've been studying is the um the virus that came from norway that's called the piscine orthoreovirus mm-hmm. called prv for short and this is a virus that was introduced into British Columbia waters through the Norwegian fish farming companies. They bring eggs, they brought eggs over from Norway mm-hmm. and uh, that brought this virus along with it. Now this virus is present on the farms. And as I mentioned earlier, because there's, you know, like a half a million fish mm-hmm. in each farm, it's a breeding ground for parasites and uh, pathogens like this virus. So when the wild fish pass by the farms, they can easily pick up this virus. 
because fish breathe through their lungs mm-hmm. or for, through their gills mm-hmm. um, and the virus is in the water coming out of the fish farms, um, it's easily passed to the wild fish and it gets in their bloodstream. Wow. And specifically with the Chinook salmon, here in Clackwood Town, we actually have a company that is um, farming Chinook salmon. Most of the companies in British Columbia are farming Atlantic salmon. Mm. Now, this uh, this company has had this virus on their farm for probably about 16 years now. Mm-hmm. And more and more research is being done. And our Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada did a study that showed the impacts on wild on Chinook salmon, which is that when they get this virus, it causes their red blood cells to rupture mm-hmm. and overwhelms their vital organs and can lead to death. So wow. we know that this uh, also impacts uh, sockeye salmon and other um, salmon species as well. And Clackwood Sound has the lowest Chinook runs of all, you know, inlets and rivers in British Columbia. So we think that specifically this farm with the uh, with the Chinook salmon is really making the problem a lot worse. But any salmon farm, even with Atlantic salmon, is shedding up to 65 billion viral particles an hour. Um, wow. Yeah, that is getting into the environment and infecting these fish. And so it's making it difficult for the fish to survive at sea. And also probably when they come back to spawn, they just don't have uh, the energy, like a sick fish, you know, nature takes care of it by <laughs> getting a predator to eat it, basically. Mm-hmm. So we feel that this is having a major impact on the survival rates of the Chinook and other salmon. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, why is wild best? I mean, it seems like you've kind of already answered this question by telling us all the negative side effects. But why is it important that that these guys remain living the way that they've lived for however long they've lived this way? Yeah, well, as I said, it's, you know, they're a keystone species that all these other um, other species depend on. And, uh, you know, also our culture, like uh, British Columbia, whether it's indigenous people or settler people here, we really identify with salmon. It's a big part of our culture here. And for indigenous cultures, it's been part of their culture for since time immemorial. It's been a big part of their diet and their, uh, you know, survival here. So um, why wild is best, Um, you know, some people choose not to eat salmon, but uh, for people who do eat salmon, it's important not to eat farm salmon because you're supporting this industry Mm -hmm. that is um, damaging the ocean and marine ecosystems and the Chinook salmon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important to have this wild species to to keep the ecosystems intact and keep them functioning in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's very important. So you touched a little bit on, you know, um, it being important culturally. So, you know, why is it vital that we incorporate like all all the cultures, but especially indigenous people in decision makings and in conservation? Well, you know, like I say, they have been here uh, in Canada are the in British Columbia, like the, the territories of indigenous peoples are unceded territories, which means they've never signed a treaty mm-hmm. or gave up their land to the British Columbia or Canadian government. So they, um, you know, they are the continue to be the stewards of this land. And they have a long, long history going back into time immemorial of caring for this land. Mm-hmm. Um, they had creek walkers who like it was just that person's job to look after certain rivers and certain creeks and looked mm-hmm. after salmon 
um, you know, and stewarding, stewarding the ecosystem in that way. So I think we have a lot to learn from Indigenous people about how to live in balance and how to respect nature and how every creature has its place in the in the web of life. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a thing called traditional ecological knowledge that is um, an acknowledgement of the knowledge that has been passed down through generations mm-hmm. of Indigenous people that give us clues and understanding the, to how we can live in harmony with nature. Um, so I think it's really important to incorporate that into our decision making. And traditional ecological knowledge, or it's also called tech, mm-hmm. is now being used more and more in conjunction with conventional science to um, to learn more about our ecosystems and learn ways that we can live better in harmony with them. Yeah, that's really important. I think, honestly, you know, we need to rely more on our Indigenous, you know, um, resources because they're the only ones that have been here that long and that really truly know the history, you know? So that's super important. I think I would add too that um, they're not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, as as non-Indigenous people, we tend to be uh, moving around a lot. You know, we don't settle in one. It's funny because in Canada, we call settlers, Mm -hmm. you know, in the decolonization movement. However, we are actually aren't all that settled. We do tend to move. And, uh, you know, I know that my friends who live here in New Channel territory, they're not going anywhere. You know, they're committed to this land, whether uh, an open pit copper mine comes in or it's been clear cut log, like they stay mm-hmm. here and they are with the land. They are not moving. And so it's in their best interest yeah. to keep uh, to keep things healthy and so that future generations can, can continue the culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to like, they're just as important, like preserving that culture is just as important as preserving the salmon and anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us about some of the successes that you guys have had with your organization? Well, I would say going back, um, for me personally, um, it goes back to the big blockades of 1993 mm-hmm. and the late 90s we were or late 80s we were able to protect um, the rainforest here in Clackwood Town mm-hmm. and that's why we have these big tracts of rainforest left you know many many valleys that have never been logged and um, we basically um, I helped organize the largest acts of civil disobedience that have happened in Canada so we had large, peaceful demonstrations to stop the clear-cut logging here. And we had about 10,000 people participating in that. And about uh, 900 people were arrested over the course of one summer to, to make a statement about the logging that was happening here. And so we were able to, um, to stop the logging. So that's a really big success and it's been a great learning. Um, and then in terms of Clackwood action and more recently, we've been able to stop the expansion of fish farms in Clackwood Sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we helped with one farm being removed. So this has been really huge. Mm-hmm. And our federal government uh, in Canada is now made a promise to get the fish farms out by 2025 mm-hmm. in British Columbia. So this is a, this is a fantastic victory that... Uh, all but one of our federal parties has admitted that these farms are damaging mm-hmm. and that they need to come out of the water. And um, so we're not, we haven't reached that success yet, but it is a benchmark to have had them um, recognize that. And uh, we'll have to work really hard to make sure that happens. But, you know, 
in all of my years of activism, you know, 30 plus years of activism and advocacy, Mm -hmm. one thing that I've realized is that success is a process, not an event. And so we look and we see, you know, these sort of milestones that we reach that show that we're working towards our goal and, and actually making progress. Yes. That's really awesome. I'd love to hear more about your experiences with activism. And that's another thing that we've kind of, there's been a theme of this throughout this podcast of it's not going to be instantaneous. And anybody that's like in this fight for the Southern residents or for, you know, the Chinook in Washington, like you have to be in it for the long haul. And, um, Gloria Pancrazi, as well as Morgan, also known as Sea Gypsy, they've been working to organize a march for the dams, and that got um, interrupted by COVID, um, you know, so obviously that's put on hold. But they're looking for new ideas and new successes and or, or old successes or old failures or things like that. What can what's your best advice for for people that are wanting to get big groups together or that are wanting to have activism? Because clearly what we've been trying for the last 20 years, not we, cause I'm only 24, I've been in this for like a year, but like we as in collectively, everyone working towards the ORCA, what can we learn from what you've done um, as far as how we could be successful in our efforts? Well, I think you kind of touched on one one thing, which is the idea that we are in for uh, we're in it for the long haul. You know, I became an, adv- um, an activist when I was in my early 20s. And I ran into uh, a philosopher, Buddhist activist named Joanna Macy. And I really recommend her writings and podcasts if, you're, if your listeners haven't heard about her. Okay. Um, she's getting up in age. I think she might be in her 80s or pushing 90 by now. But her advice um, that I learned about back then was, you know, that self-care is really important. And it might seem really odd because I know when you become aware of the different issues facing humanity and facing um, the earth and and the environment. It seems really urgent and it really is, Um, but it is important to look after yourself so that you can be involved for the long term because these things aren't gonna be solved in a couple of months. Uh, It's gonna take years and um, and, and maybe like for myself, I I can see that I'm in it for my lifetime. Yeah. the other advice I would have along those lines would be that it's, um, I think we often become involved in these issues and our our main motivator to begin with is anger. Like, I can't believe this is happening. This is outrageous. Why aren't our leaders doing something? It's so obvious the science is there. Uh, but what I found is that if you can come to the activism from a place of love for what you're concerned about that that is far more sustainable in the long run and i think it also taps into a greater life force that can inform our intelligence around the decisions that we're making within our movements Mm -hmm. um so i think that's a really important point to come from a place of love and um you know with all the work that we've done over the years here in clackwood sound the the philosophy of nonviolent action has been really important Mm -hmm. now that's a tactic but it can also be a philosophy and from the perspective of you know one of the tenets of of direct action is to treat your opponent with respect and uh you know treat all living beings with respect and if we start from that place that allows our opponents to have room to have a change of heart if we come at it from a place of anger Um, positions can become polarized and it makes it harder to move together to find a solution. 
because often when we're dealing with these problems, we're dealing with a very complex set of players, you know, and a very everyone has a very different perspective and a very different role to play. So we've found over the years by keeping this kind of open attitude and respectful attitude that we're able to work through issues, maybe some issues we have to set aside, but maybe some issues we agree on and we can move forward on. So it doesn't mean that you have to be um, passive. You're not going to challenge your opponent, uh, but it, you know, it's just a different approach. Yeah. I, you know, I totally agree with what you're saying and that's kind of been a theme throughout this too, but you know, for, for people who are more science-based, not necessarily emotion-based, there is science that backs what you're saying. I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown, but she's done a lot of studies on like, you know, shame and leadership and group dynamics and whatnot. And, you know, that's what she has found is that if you come from a place of being wholehearted, you know, that that's going to go a lot further. And I, you know, I think that that definitely plays into what you said before with the self, like self care. I think everyone goes through personal and cultural trauma and like seeing the way that our planet is, treated that is that is traumatizing in itself so like you know that that coming from a place of healing so that you can love I think is really important and I think it's important you brought that up too because so many people have that anger and it's understandable but you know if somebody approaches you with anger they're not you're not going to want to do anything you know so I think that that's a really important message and I'm glad to hear you say that and that that's been successful um, because, you know, our politicians are people too. And I think that that's really important for people to know. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, I think I would add as well <clears throat> that um, direct action always gets the goods. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Utah Phillips said. And, uh, and it's right, because when we look back through um, social movement history, there's awareness raised on issues like whether you look at um, you know abolition of slavery, women's rights, mm-hmm. um, environment, certain environmental issues. Always the turning point on the issue that we have won and made large gains on is been direct action. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's where the peaceful direct action comes in because I think if it becomes a violent direct action um, or even you know property destruction and this type of thing, that that can have a negative outcome. However. Um, you know, even within our own fish farm issue here, what we've seen in um, in one region in British Columbia, that there was a First Nations who had never consented to the farms coming into their region. Mm-hmm. This is in the Broughton Archipelago. Um, and they basically went on the farms and they occupied the farms for um, almost uh, like over almost two years. And um, basically that was the thing that shifted the whole issue because we had science, we had uh, community groups and or- environmental organizations and politicians and all kinds of people crying for this issue to be dealt with to get these farms out of the ocean. But until those people went and occupied those farms, that's when it finally came to a head. Mm-hmm. And that's what we found in Clackwood Sound as well. They tried to bring one new farm in and the indigenous people here supported by the local community occupied that farm and we were able to stop it Mm -hmm. so society has a real resistance to changing the status quo Mm -hmm. and that's where i think direct action really um can it's that final thing that you need once you've got all the science and the public opinion with you that's where direct action comes in and uh can really make a change in shifting things absolutely 
And what kind of tools do you find best from from going from obviously like awareness? I that's my understanding. That's the first step. But how do we go from awareness to motivating action in you know larger groups of people? Well, I would say that um, it is a gradient for people, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we have to realize that direct action doesn't mean just you know, locking onto something or shutting something down. Although I think ultimately those kind of things are what really shifts it when you get to that level. Mm -hmm. However, you know, people can start off with writing a letter to a politician is really a direct action. Mm -hmm. Like there are lists of direct actions that are hundreds of um, items long. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's lots of ways. And I think people just have to get, once they're aware, they can become involved at, you know, increasingly more intense levels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might start out writing a letter, but then you end up marching uh, in a rally or in a march or, um, you know, this type of thing. And you kind of can escalate people's involvement that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a good way to get people um, moving yeah. towards, you know, That's bigger awesome. actions. And it's really difficult, you know, right now when we're dealing with COVID. Right. Because we have um, on several, on the climate movement front, on our fish farm front, with work that you guys are doing on the orcas, like we have gained momentum, but now we're running into this wall of COVID. So it's making a really challenging organizing environment right now. It definitely is. I think, you know, obviously it's it's definitely a struggle and I feel very fortunate not to be affected in like a ways that a lot of other people have, but I think it's a good time for brainstorming, like, you know, and continuing to kind of organize because we are at a standstill, but, you know, I think we'll get through it and still be able to, you know, be successful at the end of the day if we have that, you know, continued perseverance, continued action. Um, so what kind of mistakes have you learned from in the past that we can that we can also learn from moving forward well i wanted to actually mention that people should uh on the direct action idea Mm -hmm. check out the website um beautiful trouble okay it's also a book i believe you can download the book there but they have a fantastic way of explaining all kinds of great creative and beautiful tactics and strategies uh, that go from very simple things to situations where people may be arrested for their actions so i would really recommend that uh that resource awesome um can you rephrase your question yes. for me or um, ask just like ha- what mistakes have you made or you know organizationally made or as a group that we can learn from going forward well, I would say that um, when we did the big blockades in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, in, especially in 93, there was a lot of uh, damage done to the movement by this idea of people not looking after themselves. So people kind of threw themselves into the summer campaign thinking this was going to be it. Mm-hmm. And people got really burned out and there was a lot of conflict and a lot of hurt. And um, it really really disabled the movement for quite a few years after that. So, you know, when I talk about self-care, it might sound kind of, I don't know, esoteric or, you know, that it's not an important thing. But our movement is not going to be one that will be strong enough to really make the changes we need to make unless we really are strong as individuals. And dealing with our own stuff, you know, not bringing that kind of, um, uh, you know, energy into into the group. Um, and what happened in 1993 was we essentially kind of turned on each other. 
because people were so, so burned out. And, you know, years later, when we did do conflict resolution and mediation, people kind of admitted that they were just so fried from uh, trying to work so hard to make a change that um, that they made these mistakes in hurting each other. Yeah. And, yeah. That's so, really and, and it makes the movement vulnerable to Asian provocateurs. So the police can more easily, or the companies can easily more implant someone who can cause disruption and conflict between people. Mm-hmm. So it's just really important to take days off and connect with what it is that you love in order to continue to do this work in a healthy way and make movement really strong. Yeah, that's, I think that that's really good advice. And that's one of the things that I noticed too, is like, that that is fairly common for people in the field to turn on each other. Um, not, not super common, but common enough to where Monica Shields wrote an entire section about it in her book, Endangered Orca. And I do see, at least in the orca activism community, little battles that aren't, they don't, to me, I don't think they matter so much, but it's like, it gets in the way of the goal. And so I think what you're saying, that's really good for us to be mindful of like taking care of yourself, but maybe also establishing those values and self-care being one of those values at the beginning. Um, That's right. Yeah. So when you get into the pressure cooker of a mass blockade or when the campaign really ramps up, you're able to handle it and be stronger together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the work that you're doing kind of switching back to the focus of the Southern resident killer whales, how like is what you're doing up in Canada affecting the Southern residents? Well, um, our work is focused on Clackwood Sound Mm -hmm. and the fish farms. However, in in British Columbia, we have over 100 fish farms Mm -hmm. and many are located on the migration route of the Fraser River salmon. Mm -hmm. And so in the Discovery Islands and the Broughtons and whatnot. So this is really impacting the Chinook that are the important food source for the orcas. And... um, Uh, So the work that we're doing here is helping to shine a light on this virus and on the sea lice issue, uh, the parasites and and viruses that are affecting these salmon. Mm -hmm. And so in order to have healthy food for these whales, we have to get these farms out of the ocean Mm -hmm. and do what we can to support these fish um, in order to to have more abundant runs so these whales can survive on those fish. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think this just goes to kind of show there's a lot of people who are really excited about the whales, which is understandable, but there's so many other animals to get excited about. And I think the work you're doing just highlights that we need to look at the big picture, not just like one thing. Um, One of the things that we always ask in these interviews is what can we learn from the whales? But because you're so connected to the salmon, I want to know what can we learn from the salmon? Well, the salmon have been around for a long time. You know, they've been visiting our coastline from California to Alaska and all, you know, and even in the Atlantic salmon, but on the West coast, they came and they, they swam up those gravelly glacier scoured rivers that had no trees and no vegetation and their bodies created the soil and the nutrients to grow all the valleys. And Mm. so that could be inhabited by other species and people. So they've lived through a lot and they are very, very, um, very determined. I think that's something we can learn from them. If you've ever witnessed any salmon trying to get back up a waterfall, um, they are just determined to to live, to spawn. And so I think that's something that we can learn from them is that vitality 
and uh, and that determination. And I think they teach us a little bit about magic too, because uh, you know sometimes you have stream keepers who look after rivers that have been devastated by urban development or by logging. And once we clean those up and we give the fish a chance, they come back almost like it's a miracle. Like, where did they come from? And so this is why I really believe if we can get rid of these salmon farms and look after these fish, I know that they will come back and they will support the uh, the abundant wildlife and cultures that, that have once depended on them. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, very resilient. All these animals, like up in the Puget Sound and in and, and your sound as well, they're all very, very resilient. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? I think I'm all done with my question, but anything that you want our listeners to know? Well, I would just say, you know, never give up. And uh, we are making progress. We are winning. We will get these farms out. We need all all the voices to work together. You know, these smaller species, so-called smaller, like herring and, and salmon, they're feeding the food web. And so we have to remember them when we're trying to protect bears and whales. Um, I'd encourage people to visit our website, salmonpeople.ca, and they can take a wild salmon pledge and we'll connect them with actions that they can do to help us to get these farms out of the ocean and make it a safe place for whales. That's awesome. Well, I'll be sure to put the link to, I think you mentioned a couple websites um, in our, in, like in the bio of this so that people can find it pretty easily. But thank you so much for being on here. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for, uh, for getting this information out to people. Yeah, of course. Um, thanks so much for joining us this week. Um, hope this was a productive conversation and that you guys find it helpful. Um, remember to check out her website as well as Beautiful Trouble. That was the other one that she mentioned. I'll be sure to put the links in this description. Um, but if you guys would like to help us out, we'd love um, for you to leave us a review or find our Patreon. Um, but yeah, if you want to support us, learn more, check out our social media. Our website should be up and running again soon. Peachy, do you have anything you want to say? Did you? <coughs> wow. That sounds like a lot. Thank you for your contributions. All right. Well, that's how Peachy feels. Have a great week. Bye-bye.